So much of life seems to be looking forward to having things together. Days and weeks make barely an impact. So much of our time is spent just keeping things afloat. Get groceries, make dinner, get the kids to bed, take a shower, do a dozen stupid tasks, and leave another dozen things undone. One wonders when their real life will begin. Real life. A happy condition of security and comfort. A time when I won't have to worry about anything. When I can work productively. Enjoy self-esteem and the respect of those around me. Be well-informed and educated. A time when the hard part is over, when I don't feel so tired. Yeah, well, I'll be 40 in November, and it's time to get used to the fact that life doesn't work that way. I look at the men and women of my generation, me included, as adolescents, as young and upcoming. We are imposters in the adult world, woefully unprepared for the rapid change occurring in our time. Our parents own their own homes were peaking in their careers, so much earlier in their lives. In my 20s, I set out to do something important. In my 30s, I obtained a doctorate from a prestigious university. But who should be proud of who? My future is uncertain. I seem barely able to provide decent food and shelter for my kids, to manage important relationships. I work day by day to stave off disappointment and disaster. Yet I'm a grown-ass man. Either this is real life or there is no such thing. In the past few episodes, I've been looking into various theoretical frameworks for consciousness. I've recently been discussing newer theories like temporospatial theory and general resonance. Today, I'm inclined to lighten the conversation in the sense of neuroscience, and perhaps to deepen it in another sense, to think about consciousness when its substrate is traveling at near the speed of light. Why? Well, I think there is an interesting principle to be derived. I got the idea when I was reading Arthur C. Clarke's classic science fiction novel, Childhood's End. In the story, alien overlords have occupied and taken control of Earth's affairs. The people of Earth are not allowed to pursue space travel, but a young scientist manages to smuggle himself onto an overlord ship headed to their distant planet at a velocity approaching the speed of light. Prior to his departure, the character writes a letter to his sister to explain what he is doing. In the letter he writes, quote, we know a lot now, through our observation of their departure, about the speed of the overlord ships. They leave the solar system under such tremendous accelerations that they approach the velocity of light in less than an hour. That means that the overlords must possess some kind of propulsive system that acts equally on every atom of their ships so that anything aboard won't be crushed instantly. I wonder why they employ such colossal accelerations, when they've got all space to play with and could take their time picking up speed. My theory is that they can somehow tap the energy fields around the stars, and so have to do their starting and stopping while they're fairly close to the sun. But that's all by the way. The important fact was that I knew how far they had to travel, and therefore how long the journey took. NGS 549672 is 40 light years from Earth. The overlord ships reach more than 99% of the speed of light, so the trip must last 40 years of our time. Our time. That's the crux of the matter. Now, as you may have heard, strange things happen as one approaches the speed of light. Time itself begins to flow at a different rate, to pass more slowly, so that what would be months on Earth would be no more than days on the ships of the overlords. The effect is quite fundamental. It was discovered by the great Einstein more than a hundred years ago. I have made calculations based on what we know about the star drive, and using the firmly established results of relativity theory, from the viewpoint of the passengers on one of the overlord ships, the journey to NGS 549672 will last not more than two months, even though by Earth's reckoning 40 years will have passed. I know this seems a paradox, and if it's any consolation, it's puzzled the world's best brains ever since Einstein announced it. 
Perhaps this example will show you the sort of thing that can happen and will give you a clearer picture of the situation. If the overlords send me straight back to Earth, I shall arrive home having aged only four months, but on Earth itself, 80 years will have passed. So you understand, Maya, that whatever happens, this is goodbye." Unquote. Arthur C. Clarke has contrived a fictional set of conditions for us to undertake a thought experiment. By means of his hand-waving star drive technology, we get a man in a spaceship traveling at near the speed of light on a long-range return trip of 80 light-years. The plausibility of this feat of engineering does not need to concern us here. The man figures to experience four months of his life on board, but reappear on Earth 80 years in its future. I'm sure you've thought about this kind of thing before, traveling at high speed in space and coming back to Earth to visit the future. It's a means of forward time travel. I've certainly imagined this form of time travel from time to time, but now I have a new angle to consider. As we all know, a clock on board the ship will click along just as it was doing when the ship was at rest, and the passenger will not have any sense that anything is occurring at a faster or slower pace. Inside the ship, everything is perfectly consistent with everything else. So according to the onboard clock, his heart is pumping at 75 beats per minute or whatever. His breathing rate is normal. His cellular metabolism is at the usual rate. He speaks at his usual pace. He walks around at his usual pace and all that. Inside the brain, his neurons are firing at their usual frequencies relative to the clock on board. But back on Earth, a similar brain is firing relatively much faster. Everything back there is happening at a much faster pace than it is on the ship. It seems obvious to me that our passenger will be perfectly conscious in the usual way because everything in the brain is operating according to its normal schedule relative to everything else in the brain. Neuronal communication is perfectly preserved, but is in fact happening much slower than it ever has before. The brain, with its constituent firing rates and rhythms, evolved on Earth under local space-time conditions. What does this mean for theories of consciousness that talk about a temporal window or extended present moment? For example, integrated information theory depends upon a discrete time scale over which the maximum cause-effect power occurs. For the human brain, they hypothesize that the time constant is around 200 milliseconds. What if it all slowed down to take 30 seconds, or 2 minutes, or 24 hours? For my framework and some others, time scales of local neural activity are nested within a wider time scale across the thalamocortical system. I've suggested that the wider time scale might be about one second long. Some think it is even longer, several seconds. In principle, there is no special reason why a certain time frame should enable subjective experience, but not another time frame. It looks to me as if the relative internal temporal setting is what matters. On the ship, traveling at near the speed of light, everything is unfolding normally. The passenger is fully conscious and the conditions of his environment are consistent with his experiences back on Earth. In Cosmos, Carl Sagan wrote, quote, Close to the speed of light, from your point of view, the world looks very odd. Ultimately, everything is squeezed into a tiny circular window which stands just ahead of you. From the standpoint of a stationary observer, light reflected off you is reddened as you depart and blue as you return. If you travel toward the observer at almost the speed of light, you will become enveloped in an eerie chromatic radiance. Your usually invisible infrared emission will be shifted to the shorter visible wavelengths. You become compressed in the direction of motion. Your mass increases, and time as you experience it slows down, a breathtaking consequence of traveling close to the speed of light, called time dilation. But from the standpoint of an observer moving with you, none of these effects occur. These peculiar and at first perplexing predictions of special relativity are true in the deepest sense that anything in science is true. They depend on your relative motion. 
but they are real, not optical illusions. They can be demonstrated by simple mathematics, mainly first-year algebra and therefore understandable to any educated person. They are also consistent with many experiments. Very accurate clocks carried in airplanes slow down a little compared to stationary clocks. Nuclear accelerators are designed to allow for the increase of mass with increasing speed. If they were not designed in this way, accelerated particles would all smash into the walls of the apparatus and there would be little to do in experimental nuclear physics. A speed is a distance divided by time. Since near the velocity of light we cannot simply add speeds as we are used to doing in the workaday world, the familiar notions of absolute space and absolute time, independent of your relative motion, must give way. That is why you shrink. That is the reason for time dilation." Unquote. So perhaps looking out the window would reveal some bizarre 2001 A Space Odyssey optics, but inside the ship things appear normal. Objectively, everything aboard is compressed, weighs more, and occurs much slower. But everything in the brain is happening with the same relative dynamics as usual. If we accept this, then we have a piece of thought data. That's not a thing, by the way. It means that consciousness depends on internal relations in time. There is not an actual objective time frame which allows conscious contents to be perceived as subjective experience. The temporally integrated causality landscape predicts that the contents of consciousness would carry exactly the same meaning in this near light speed condition because the geometric relationships in space and time would be the same. The neuronal activities responsible for giving rise to content would all be slowed down. The amount of time it takes for an action potential to travel along an axon would be much longer. The rate of integration, of cause and effect, would all be slowed. But they would be slowed together, so all the internal nested relations would hold. If you are on the ship, traveling to distant stars, and I'm back home drifting happily around the sun on Earth, we are both conscious entities. For every thought or perception that you have, I have thousands of them. But we both occupy the same universe. If those are the rules, then we have to substantially revise our intuitions about consciousness and its physics. I am no panpsychist, as I've made clear on many occasions, but doesn't this realization imply that systems here on Earth, which we assume to be utterly without conscious being, might in fact exhibit conscious being over a much longer time frame? For example, consider how ludicrous it is to claim that a forest is conscious. We assume with plenty of reason that trees are not conscious beings. The cells and tissues that make up the living tree do utilize hormones and cellular pathways, but the causality that occurs from cell to cell is diffuse and disintegrated. Let's allow that trees do not have minds, but neither do human muscles and kidneys and testicles. Okay, maybe testicles. Really though, most of the human biological structure is not possessed of subjective experience. Consciousness occurs in the integrated thalamocortical brain under the right conditions. Things become disintegrated during states of non-consciousness. So we human minds exist and cease to exist at intervals. Let's get back to the forest. Consider a tree or a moss or a leafy vine just as you consider a muscle, a lymph node, and a vein. Each does what it does according to genetics and environmental conditions. The roots of the trees operate symbiotically with bacteria in the soil just as our intestines do. Fungal mycelial networks spread through the forest floor and evidence shows that trees signal to one another with hormones and they exchange nutrients. It should be possible for a forest or a jungle, at least if it evolved along those lines, to be characterized by integrated interactions. And all this is far too slow to be comparable to neuronal signaling speeds in the brain. At first blush, that is what disqualifies something like a forest from being conscious, but not anymore. 
I'm not saying that forests are having experiences, mind you, but the speed of integrated causality cannot be marshaled as an argument against it. Not if we accept the premise that two people can be conscious at completely different speeds, depending on, upon their relative motion. Recall the example that you are in a ship traveling near the speed of light, and I am on Earth. I said that for every thought or perception that you have, I have thousands of them. But we both occupy the same universe. Well, right now, you and I occupy the same universe as a lot of systems, forests or other such biological societies, which might have the same features of integrated causality that our brains have, but over much longer time frames. What are the limits of this? Consider human civilization. There are something like 7 billion human beings going about their business at the moment. This is at least in the neighborhood of the number of neurons in the thalamocortical system. Each human creature interacts to some degree with a network of other human beings. Let's allow that some of the humans are so disconnected, so isolated in small communities, that they have no daily effect on the civilization. That's fine. The same thing happens in the thalamocortical system. According to theories like the TICL and integrated information, plenty of neurons are not part of the coalition which makes up the ongoing conscious substrate. What about the rest of them? At some scale, the things that individuals do spread causality to the rest of the civilization. This might be a bigger effect than we appreciate. Take, for example, a car accident. If we rewind the clock a few minutes and have things occur differently, even a little differently, the car accident does not occur. A phone call happens three seconds earlier. Another car at the previous light pulls out rather than waiting. What makes that happen? Well, another person in the same parking lot taps the brakes because a bird swoops overhead. Who knows? A million tiny variables add up to our present conditions. The point is that the cause and effect human beings have upon one another is obvious. But intuition tells us that the spread of causality around the whole world is way too slow to produce something like a human community mind. If it is like something to be humanity, then it is occurring at a very slow pace. If this conversation seems ridiculous to you, I get it. It's ridiculous to me, too. And I'm not placing a bet on human civilization being conscious. According to the TICL, consciousness is composed of a large integrated system of elements within which nested subsystems of elements are even more integrated on shorter timescales. Broadly speaking, human civilization is a large integrated system of people with nested groupings of people exhibiting causality upon one another at a higher rate and over a shorter time frame. So what right have I got given this theory to rule out consciousness in the latter while positing it in the former? Something has got to give. As serious intellectuals, we have to be consistent and principled. Consciousness is a physical phenomenon in a physical universe. Whenever and wherever conditions are met for consciousness, it must be manifest. Maybe consciousness is a feature of all kinds of systems over very long time frames. Maybe the brain's thalamocortical system has not exactly produced consciousness. Maybe what it has produced is a consciousness that functions to make a difference in the world on a timescale that is useful to the organism. Maybe consciousness is common in the universe, but so diffuse so weak of meaning and coherence that it barely matters. Evolution on Earth has taken that weak, diffuse subjectivity and condensed it into an ongoing model of the world for the advantage of the individual organism possessed of a complex brain. Maybe. Mm -hmm.